welcome to The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. It is week zero, coming up this weekend. Um, It is also today SEC Day on The Audible, and we're going to be joined here in a little bit by our great Alabama writer, Kenny Smith, to talk Alabama and SEC. Alabama, a team I am a little bit down on. A lot down on, I guess, compared to their recent history. But first, Bruce, we've had some quarterback announcements this week. And one really stands out in particular. You and I worked on a story for The Athletic in February about Jaden Rashada, the the recruit from California who first was committed to Miami and was rumored to get a huge NIL deal, then signed with Florida. Then it turned out he had a $13.8 million NIL contract that went kaput. And so he ends up to Arizona State, where his dad played. And we thought, okay, you know, he could be under the radar a little bit. He won't be in the spotlight for a little while. He can take some time to develop. Well, guess what? Jaden Rashada has one Arizona State starting quarterback job for week one. I think that's a pretty cool kind of redemption story there. Yeah, I mean, I think it's great that he's got an opportunity. I mean, Drew Pine was dealing with, I think, a hamstring injury, right? Um, mm-hmm. And was slowed by that. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how he goes because we, you know, we've talked a bunch in the last month and even a couple of days ago on the last episode of the podcast about how loaded the PAC 12 is with quarterbacks and mostly proven quarterbacks. And I think the one young quarterback that I think everybody's been kind of keeping an eye on is Dante Moore, who is a much highly or higher regarded recruit in the 2023 class who's now at UCLA. But I think that, you know, just to see that Rashada, it's such a, it's a good juxtaposition compared to, you know, parts of that story where he had, where he had this kid and he's still a kid at that point, um, really reeling from all the stuff around him. You know, the scenes from him at the elite 11, where he's um, just coping with a lot of stuff, a lot of it, not his, his own doing, to be honest. So I think he's a guy that a lot of, people who read that story and even if you didn't and you know his story a little bit i think we'll be rooting for and i'm i'm curious to see how he does as we were reporting that and talking to people in the recruiting world you know some people thought some people raved about his talent thinks he can be a college star others were mixed so you know i don't know how long he'll hold on to that job when drew pine is healthy but certainly interesting storyline there um, this one, not a surprise, but but notable. Oregon State, DJ Uyunglele will be Oregon State's week one starter, the very well-known Clemson transfer, former five-star, who had obviously a rocky career there. You were there in the spring and you talked to him. Um, what is he capable of in the Oregon State offense and how how solid is that, that hold on the job? Because obviously you've got Ben Goldbranson there, who was the starter last year, albeit underwhelming. And then probably more uh, notably, you've got Aiden Childs, the early enrollee who just wowed everybody this spring, kind of, I don't know, waiting in the wings if DJ stumbles. I think, you know, I think the one thing to be careful of with on, you know, the Aiden Childs kind of stuff is, you know, I was up there in the spring on one day and he looked really impressive. And I think he is impressive. You know, he was a guy that Notre Dame came in on late in the recruiting process and stayed committed to Jonathan Smith and Oregon State. I think they think he's going to be really good, but I think sometimes, you know, what somebody looks like and what they think they can, I don't know if they want to rush somebody out there. DJ has a lot of experience. 
you know, I mean, as you said, it was rocky. I mean, he really opened up when I was up there on that trip up there. And I think there was a lot of frustration of how, you know, the offense he was in and, and he's really had to acclimate to a different system. There's a lot of different footwork that he's had to learn. Um, I think there's still some mechanical stuff that they were, they're kind of tweaking as well. Um, but he's definitely got a, he's definitely got a lot of ability. He's also a big, strong guy who I think can, you know, he ran for, I think one, you know, one year at Clemson, like over 500 yards. So he is a weapon in that regard as well. Um, he's another guy I would say, you know, as we, as we said just a minute ago about Rashada, you know, having spent some time around DJ a little bit now, um, he's somebody I would definitely, you, you want to see do well because, I, th- I thought he had actually a refreshing perspective, especially in this regard, because one of the questions that I was kind of like, I knew I was going to ask him, but it was a little bit delicate, is when I was up there, it was right before the NFL draft. He's a Southern California kid who was the most hyped of all of them at early on when he was this grown man in ninth grade. And the two other quarterbacks, and one wasn't anywhere near as hyped as him coming up, and that was CJ Stroud. The other one was Bryce Young. And there was not a tinge of bitterness or jealousy or envy when I asked him about that um, and how it, you know, how does he handle that in terms of those guys are going to be where he probably expected to be and they're going to be at now and he's in Corvallis. And I think when you hear somebody, you know, whether they're a, whether they're a 40 year old person or a 20 year old person and they're, if the 20 year old can have such a mature perspective on it, um, like that was my big takeaway from him. So I'm, I'm very interested. This is a good team. They have good receivers. They have a terrific running back and it's a good system for him. I think this is an opportunity for him to flourish because I don't think he's going to be expected to, you know, it's not like they're going to ask him to throw for 4,000 yards, but I think there's a lot of stuff that Jonathan Smith w- and, and Brian Lindgren will showcase that he does do well. And we'll see, you know, again, expectations are pretty high around Corvallis. At this point, they're a preseason top 20 team. And, you know, he's the guy who's, I don't want to say he's under the radar, but just there's so much attention on all the other quarterbacks in the league. Not just, you know, Bo Nix has got billboards. Michael Penix threw for a ton of yards. Caleb won won the Heisman. I mean, he's not the guy that everyone's focusing on. So maybe a good thing for him. All right, this one, one more. It's a little under the radar, but it's a name that I think most people remember from the SEC. Haynes King, former Texas A&M quarterback, he got hurt early in the 2021 season after being named the starter. He comes back last year and he really struggled. But new start, Georgia Tech is not a team that everybody has particularly high expectations for, but they did very quietly get a lot better over the second half of last season. That's why Brent Key got the permanent job. Um, What do we think he's capable of there? I mean, he's talented. It's it's interesting because Hudson Card, who's I feel like they're t- the two are lumped together. Uh, one was a Texas, and one was a Texas A and M. Hudson Card is now at Purdue. He was just, he you know he's a captain at Purdue, and he's in Graham Harrell's air raid, which means he's going to be throwing it all over the place. Um, I would expect you know probably less. You know, I don't think they're going to throw it as much anywhere near as much. Um, but at this point, at Georgia Tech. You know, they had just been such a dud offensively for so long there. Um, I don't, I'll be honest, I'm not really sure what to, like, I feel like I don't have big expectations for Georgia Tech right now. So no. not, not to diminish it, but we'll see. I don't have high expectations, but I also feel like 
I don't have high expectations for about half that conference, maybe more. So somebody will break through, maybe go like, could be them, maybe go eight and four or something like that. Is there anyone I overlooked in terms of, I mean, Carson Beck got named starter at Georgia, but that I think was expected all along. I don't think that was really uh, much of a competition. The one that I'm surprised there hasn't been an announcement is Ohio State, because coming out of the spring, Kyle McCord seemed like the clear guy, but Ryan Day insists that he and Devin Brown are pretty much even. Yeah, the other one that's that's not been named yet, um, Alan Bowman, who's a guy I spent a bunch of time around this offseason who put up big numbers when he was healthy in the Big 12 and is now at Oklahoma State. He's still, they, you know, they still technically have a competition there. Um, I guess that surprised me a little bit on that regard because I would, you know, I would still expect him to be the guy. Before we get to our guests um, this week, I did want to ask you, it is week zero. Um, there's a couple of intriguing games. There's definitely some top 25 teams in action. Uh, which are the two or three games you're going to make a point to watch this weekend? Obviously, Notre Dame Navy. Um, I think that's obviously the most high profile week zero game. Um, I want to watch USC San Jose State. I got to figure out like I did last year how to get Pac-12 network. Just go to Do a sports bar. It's Dude, on, I'm in I'm in Sunnyvale, California. If I go to a sports bar, they'll probably be showing an NFL preseason game or the San Francisco Giants. No, there are streaming services that have Pac-12 Network, and I sign up for them for you know the few months of the season. And then I just think, how can you not just because it's on ESPN in prime time on the East? How can you not tune in for at least a little bit of the um, much anticipated showdown between UMass and New Mexico State? Um, yeah, by the way, the, the bowl game, one of the things I loved about bowl games, uh, you know, the quarterback there, who's a New Mexico kid, Diego Pavia, just like was making plays left and right. Hey, it's a chance to watch that school. Stu, you're, I can't believe you're snubbing the game that I'm going to be, I'm going to be uh, part of the broadcast for. Is that Ohio at San Diego State? Yeah. I mean, those are two of the best teams in their leagues. Curtis Rourke is a really good quarterback at Ohio. Um, they're, they're probably one of the two best teams in that league, San Diego state. I would think, you know, that's maybe the most competitive game that that's going to be on Saturday. And I do love the Bobcats being from Cincinnati. Uh, so yes, you're right. That should definitely be in the mix. And also I can't promise I actually will watch any of USC, UMass, New Mexico state. Um, we forgot one of the someone and Tim Brando on the call. We forgot one quarterback, uh, announcement, Luke Altmeyer was the, you know, at Ole Miss. He's going to be a starter at Illinois who surprised a lot of people last year. And we're wondering what Brett Bielema does this year without Chase Brown. Um, without a loaded secondary. I mean, they're, they're really going to be good in the front seven, but you know, they lost Witherspoon. They lost, you know, really three big time players went in, I think the top 75 of the draft. I know they're really good in the middle of the D you know, the D lines loaded. They have linebackers who can run. Um, I think the defense Just will still be pretty nasty, though. Really haven't seen that much of Luke Altmeyer. He came in in the Sugar Bowl when Matt Corral got hurt and really struggled, but he was a freshman. And then, obviously, Jackson Dart was the guy last year. So uh, I think this is really going to be the first real um, significant playing time we've seen from him. And, yeah, look, Tommy DeVito was not – an all-American kind of quarterback, but he was the starting quarterback for a team that did very well last year for Illinois. 
I think in the Brett Bielema offense, you don't have to be Russell Wilson for the team to have success. So if he's good, if he's avoids turnovers and is above average and they run the ball well, we could see another good season for the Illini. What do you say we get into some SEC? Kenny, thanks for joining us today on the Audible. Yeah, I appreciate you guys for having me. I'm the new kid on the block on the college football side, so I feel like I've been on a crazy podcast run. I think I've appeared on <laughs> something every day for the last few days, and uh, this one is up next, so I appreciate y'all having me on. All right. Well, Kenny, before we get too far down the road on Alabama and the rest of the SEC or the details inside the Alabama Crimson Tide, so my colleague Stu has his SEC conference predictions up, and he thinks the Crimson Tide is really going to stink this year. Is he crazy? Relatively speaking, right? Right. They haven't lost three games in a season since 2010, so picking them to go nine and three is blasphemy but um kenny actually have to say the final i was debating 10 and 2 or 9 and 3 the final straw was actually reading your projected depth chart story this week and i just think no i mean it's good no it was (laughs) illuminating because obviously we've all been waiting to see how the quarterback race is going to play out we know that Okay, this is my personal opinion. I'm going to, you can tell me if I'm crazy or right or what, but he brought in Tyler Buckner after spring practice, which tells you he wasn't feeling good about their quarterback situation. Turns out, here we are a week or so away from the season, and Tyler Buckner is your third string quarterback. You expect Jalen Milrow to start week one. So either Jalen Milrow got considerably better since the spring, or this could be a problem. Yeah, I think that's a good way to phrase it. It's it's kind of one of those, if you're an Alabama fan, it's either looking at a glass half full or empty. On the full side is the reason why Ty Simpson hasn't been able to catch Milrow or Tyler Buckner hasn't been able to really insert himself into the top two is because Milrow has just kind of taken it and run with it. Or on the half empty side, it's of all three of these guys, none of them are really standing out, but Miro is the one with the most experience, probably the best playmaker. So that's who you you roll with. Um, I'm probably somewhere in the middle. I think with Buckner, the interesting thing about it is there is continuity there from Tommy Reese, but it's not the copy paste Notre Dame offense from what he ran there to what he's running at Alabama. So there are nuances that he's familiar with, but it's my understanding that he was um, relatively speaking a little slow picking some things up and he's like just now starting to come on in the second half of camp. So he's trying to to make ground, but I think it is Milrow and Simpson at at the top two. I think with Milrow, the interesting thing about him is the element with Tommy Reese and how much he enjoys doing RPOs and how much he likes, you know, zone reads and read options. I think trying to build an offense that fits Jalen Milrow's strengths, I, I think, is going to be um, something that's a little bit underrated. I feel like a lot of people are talking about Milrow as a passer, which is um, extremely valid because you are going to need a quarterback to make those throws in those big games. But I think at least early on in the season, Reese is going to be able to to build some schemes around him that are going to be able to utilize his athleticism in a different way than what Bill O'Brien did last year when he was just kind of thrusted in to the fire. They didn't really have time to kind of fit an entire game plan around his strengths. So, I'm going with Milrow to to start week one. I do feel like at some point somebody else is going to start this season. Um, but 
Milrow to me is um, is QB one, and I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised to see him in the year QB one as well. Um, as far as Alabama's win loss, I have them at worst at ten and two. So I feel like their floor is like a New Year's Six level team. If Milrow surprises us or Ty Simpson or Buckner, I do feel like they could be a team in playoff contention. But I don't see them falling below two losses. Oh, I'm curious on this. So from the outside looking in. You had a team that had one of you know the worst year Nick Saban had in a long time at Alabama last year. They had the best quarterback, you know, arguably they've ever had there under Nick Saban, Heisman Trophy winner. They had arguably the best defensive player he's had in in Will Anderson. Both of those guys are gone. In addition to Jamar Gibbs, um, what are the reasons? I don't want to. I don't want to like Pat Stu on the back here. But like, and I could see t- ten and two makes sense to me. But if you're selling Alabama on the personnel, just take out Nick Saban's track record as best we can off to the side. Like, what are the things you're seeing and hearing about this team now that are your biggest reasons for optimism in in the locker room? Yeah, I think the first is that they're going to be a lot more of a balanced team. When you talk about the two stars that they had last year, I think that. What ultimately did Bama in was that they were too star reliant. When you look at what that offense was with Bryce Young last year, a lot of it was just giving the ball to Bryce Young and kind of everybody getting out of the way and him playing hero ball. And Gibbs was a top 15 pick. And I think you can make the argument that he was underutilized in that offense. He had less than 200, less than 200 touches for a top 15 pick. So I think the balance is something that is um, an attractive thing if you're an Alabama fan that you know they're going to run the ball. I think that their offensive line could be one of the strengths of this team. Their running back room is definitely the strength of the team. I would say arguably the best position group on the team. So you know they're going to run the ball. They're going to have a balanced running attack. And when you add in Milrow's dynamic running ability, all of a sudden it kind of reminds you of the, the Bama teams from the early 2010s where they're going to run the ball and play good defense. On the defensive side, I think the addition of Kevin Steele, while they're not going to do anything schematically much different, I think his presence and his approach to eliminating the penalties and the communication errors that did the defense in last year, I think those improvements uh, are going to push the defense forward. So I look at a team that's going to be able to run the ball. You hope they're going to have more balance on offense, a defense that I think is going to be one of the better ones in the country when it's all said and then they have a lot of experience um, in that back seven and a college football landscape where a lot of the teams that are contending for SEC titles and national titles have the same questions as Alabama or another glaring question. Georgia, Ohio State, Alabama, new quarterback. Uh, USC, are they going to have the, the defense that's going to be able to hold up? Clemson with Kay Kublik, you know, young, promising prospect, but we have to see a whole season of him. Florida State, are they going to live up to the hype? Is LSU going to you know, take a step forward after overachieving in year one, or are they going to take uh, a step back? So I don't think that there's a clear-cut dominant team in, in college football this year. So I think, you know, Bama kind of re-embracing complementary football and playing good defense and maybe a weaker field than, than past years should give fans optimism. And I think that's all valid. I mean, um, I, I fully acknowledge Nick Saban could make me look really dumb here. Uh, I assume the reason, I mean, a little surprising to me, Bruce, I think what you were getting at is Alabama's number four in the preseason poll. And if you were going just by returning personnel, proven guys, 
I don't think you could justify that. I don't even know if you could justify close to that. So that's basically just a big bet on Nick Saban knows what he's doing and he'll have a trick up his sleeve and he'll figure this out. One thing I noticed, though, not that preseason all SEC teams are gospel, but man, it really it came out the other day and I was like, I counted it up. Georgia has 10 first first team guys. LSU has six. Alabama has four. And two of the four Alabama guys are special teams. So the the biggest thing that to me the issues is like how much has changed in a couple of years where Alabama was always the standard bearer. And now clearly it's Georgia. Ten guys on the on the first team all SEC team. But um but you're right, Kenny, in that I think we're overlooking we don't know about Georgia's new quarterback either, right? I do think everything we've heard, Carson Beck looks great. Um, but we're just kind of assuming they keep they keep it rolling without Stetson Bennett, who played a big part in it. Do you have any thoughts on LSU? I, I, I the opposite of of my take on Alabama is I've been probably as high as anybody on on LSU and that they could play for, if not win the national title. But that's a big step up from last season. Yeah, definitely. I I am a fan of LSU, honestly. And I remember I was on the Paul Feinbaum show during SEC media days, he kind of put me on the spot and he said, who do you have winning the West? And I said, at this moment, I have to pick LSU because the questions that Alabama has right now, LSU, at least we think, has those answered. We know who their quarterback is, is Jaden Daniels. We know that they have an all-SEC caliber receiver, Malik Neighbors. Uh, defensively, they did what they did last year without Mason Smith, which I feel like is something that is probably not talked about enough. You have this dominant interior lineman who goes down in week one at LSU is still able to win the West and he returns Harold Perkins, one of the premier players in the SEC, if not the country on the defensive side. So I'm high on LSU. I think that they have really strong frontline starters and they have a lot of star power, but the key for that team is going to be keeping those guys healthy. I don't know depth wise that they probably have as much depth top to bottom as like a Georgia for example. So um, I'm high on LSU. I think they're going to have to keep that team healthy. And if Jaden Daniels can take a step forward in year two under Brian Kelly, then you know they are going to be right there in the thick of the national championship conversation. I do think from talking, I've had a bunch of calls with coaches around the country in the last week or two. And some of the stuff I've heard about Jaden Daniels, um, so I'm about to turn in you know, my top 25 preview and some predictions. I have LSU going to the playoff. I've heard Jaden Daniels has taken a huge step forward from what people have seen from him in camp. They've been really impressed by how he's seeing things, processing a lot faster. They think the passing game is really going to take off. On the defensive side, not just Mason Smith, not just Perkins, I think you're going to see a couple of transfers, especially Andre Sam, who was a, a kid who started out as clear at McNeese State. He's a safety. Then he he was at Marshall. He is going to have a big impact. The secondary is the area where I think they, the front seven is pretty loaded. The secondary is big question marks. He will stabilize that. And he's a big time player from everything I've heard. So I am with you guys on the, you know, Stu, I, I know you've been banging the drum pretty hard on Baton Rouge and I am going from everything I've heard. I'm going to, to echo it. I do think they have, some some question marks in the run game like whereas you know Kenny talked about just what Alabama has in their backfield I don't think you know I'm a little I'm a little concerned about LSU's they have a bunch of bodies and everything but um 
I don't know if there's the star power there that that uh, you know we're come to see from some of these SEC schools. But I I still think with Jaden Daniels, what what they've done there with him, I think bodes really well. So we spent a lot of time on those three teams. Let's each go around the table here. Who is a outside of Alabama, Georgia, LSU? Who is somebody you think could sneak up and be in the championship uh, discussion? Kenny, sorry, let me go first. Sorry, with me. Yeah, um, I'll start. I guess I'll start. I'll go with um, I'll go with Tennessee. I'll go with Tennessee. It was between them and Texas A&M, but I'm going to go with Tennessee. I think if Joe Milton can take that next step and he can be what he's projected to be and what the hype around him is, I really think that this is going to be an offense that I don't know if they're going to, you know, it's going to be hard to eclipse what they did last year, but I think they can be of that same caliber. And I know there's question marks about, you know, Cedric Tillman and Jalen Hyatt leaving, but I think Squirrel White is a, is a breakout candidate in the SEC as far as uh, breakout receivers. Defensively, they have to get better, but it is a veteran-laden defense. You would have to think that they're going to take a step forward. Um, the question mark that I have for Tennessee, especially when it comes to playing against Georgia, is I think you saw the gap in recruiting along the line of scrimmage really manifested itself in that Georgia game. I mean, Jalen Carter really just kind of took the game over you can see Tennessee couldn't match that level of, of physicality if they can take steps forward along the lines of scrimmage and they're going to have Georgia you know in Knoxville this year so um, I like Tennessee as a, as a dark horse in the championship conversation if they can you know plug a, a few holes I think they could be a potentially dangerous team. Tennessee would be mine too for largely what you said and, and on that side of it in terms of the physicality especially on the lines that's without their best lineman who's, who's a first-round pick going on to the NFL as a right tackle, and he was really good in those kinds of big games. That that definitely concerns me. I mean, I, I don't think even if the game is at home, I don't think they're going to win the East. Um, my dark, dark horse, because I've seen people, you know, tout Texas A&M and Ole Miss some. Mine is, at least as a top, you know, a team that's, that I have in the top 20 that I think could surprise some people is Kentucky. I really think Devin Leary, who was terrific a couple of years ago for NC State, I think he's a he's going to have a big year for them. They have good young receivers. I think they have some playmakers on defense. Um, Mark Stoops is a really good coach. I think they have a chance to surprise some people. To me, um, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if they ended up in the in the top fifteen. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm very high in Tennessee too. I am going ten and two. I just don't see how they can win that division unless Georgia just collapses. I mean, they're I don't know if Georgia's gonna three peat as a national champion, but I feel pretty confident they're gonna win the SEC East. You guys both mentioned AM as a possibility. I think if, and this is a big if, Jimbo Fisher lets Bobby Petrino do his thing, um, I think that can be a, a difference maker. And I don't believe that that team is as bad talent wise as five and seven last year suggested. I just think that was it was a mess for a lot of different reasons. And also, some of the most impressive players for them were true freshmen, including the quarterback who's taking over full-time this year. So if they can put it together, if Alabama's as vulnerable as I think they are, if LSU doesn't quite live up to the hype, there is a window there for AM to at least get to Atlanta. Of course, they haven't actually done that yet, so that's a big, that's a big ask. Um, can I, uh, can yeah. I flip the conversation yeah. quick since we talked to A&M on this? What do you think guys think is a better chance of happening? Texas A&M making the playoff 
or Jimbo Fisher being fired this year? Ooh, hmm, that's a I good one. Gonna, that's that's it. That is a good one. I'm gonna lean. I'm gonna lean playoffs because I think they are going to be a lot better this year. And to Stu's point about the talent, one thing that I think about when I think about Texas A&M is. I think people forget that loss in the mix of their season that they went down to the last play against Alabama. It was a goal line stand, and then they beat LSU right before uh, you know LSU goes on to the SEC championship. If you flip that and AM converts that goal line stand against Bama, they beat them and then they beat LSU how they did to reach bowl eligibility. Would people be thinking about them in a different way this year? A down year, but they beat Alabama and a um LSU, they can clearly play with both of those teams. So, um, you know, kind of weeding out some of what happened last year, those second year guys taking that that next step. And I feel like AM could could surprise some people as well. I think that even if AM isn't a playoff team, they're not gonna go five and seven again, right? I think they'll go at worst seven and five, eight and four. If there's if he's seven and five, he's getting fired. With that buyout, you think they would fire him at seven and five? Seven and, I do think they would. Um, I don't know for a fact, but I do think they would fire him at seven and five. I think they might fire him at eight and four. I don't know if you're Texas A and M, how you how comfortable you can be with with Jimbo Fisher at eight and four with one good year and six seasons there. This is Texas A and M. They fired you know they fired Kevin Sumlin for less. Yeah, but Kevin Sumlin, I don't, I don't remember off the top of my head where that buyout is. I, I'm, I no longer am of the opinion yeah. that like they can't fire him for years because of that buyout. I mean, if they're if they really want him gone, they'll they'll find the money. It just seems like if you go from five and seven to eight and four, and in particular if you beat an Alabama or LSU in there to do it, um, the boosters might say, oh, "Let's give it one more year and save ourselves ten million dollars." But I could be wrong. Yeah, the buy, yeah, the buyout was the big reason for me kind of leaning the other way. I do agree with your, your sentiment though, that at a certain point, the eight and fours, the nine and threes, isn't going to cut it for as much as they're paying him, but I don't see that happening this upcoming year. All right. I'm going to throw a different scenario at you. Um, so when I did my predictions, I just did not see anything to like about Florida. And, you know, we're always very careful about criticizing college players, but let's just say Graham Mertz, being the answer seems unlikely. So I ended up picking them to go three and nine, which would be their worst record since 1979. So which is more likely Florida going 10 and two or Florida going three and nine. How about Florida going nine and three versus, so we just make the same. You're all going to say nine and three. If I do that, (laughs) I think there's a better chance of Florida being a top 15 team than Florida being a three and nine team. What's the selling point? What's the selling point for Florida? You know, I don't think Graham Mertz is as bad as you think he is. Um, I think he had his moments at at uh, Wisconsin. I do think that they have some some pretty good talent around. Um, I think when I look at them now, look, he did not inherit a great situation. The guy he followed was not a good recruiter. Um, I noticed Dan Mullen, I think he had them like third from the bottom in his, in his preseason predictions for the SEC. Um, but, you know, three and nine to me, Stu, when I'm looking at their schedule, 
I get it. The the non-conference is not easy. And, you know, with they have to go to Utah and they have Florida State. And Florida State is much better than they've been in the last five years. Um, the other two games are Charlotte, which I think they're much improved. But I still, that's in the swamp. They should win that. And McNeese State, that's an FCS team. They should win that. So I think, and I, I guess I disagree with you. I don't think they're going to be one and seven in the SEC. You know, they get Vanderbilt at home. They should win that. Um, you know, I don't know. There's not a lot of easy games. I mean, I would look at it and go, okay, could they beat KJ Jefferson in Arkansas in the swamp? Probably. I'm not sure I'd pick them to do it. You know, then the, the Kentucky team I just talked up, they got to go there. South Carolina, who most people think is a bowl team, they got to go there, and that's not an easy place. You know, then it's, it's at Mizzou, who's probably a bowl team, and that's also on the road. It's just like, I don't know. I could see where you'd probably have them as a four and eight kind of team. Yeah. Kenny, is there someone else who you, cause somebody has got to finish last. <laughs> uh, is there someone and we're and van, you can't say Vandy. Is there someone else who you think could be surprisingly worse than they usually are? And this is either side of the either division. Yeah. Conference. Um, could be worse. I think. Hmm. Arkansas you can say Florida, but you can't say Vandy. Okay, true. Um, I would say potentially Arkansas. I like KJ Jefferson a lot. I know they're going to be able to run the ball. Um, are they going to be able to correct what happened in the secondary? They kind of had this weird cycle of talent in the offseason where they had a lot of guys leaving the program, a lot of guys entering the program. And I just have questions about how all of those um, you know, new players are going to assimilate into the culture perimeter playmakers you know you're going to have you need that at the sec especially in in the west competing against that that tough gauntlet so um you know arkansas could su- surprise me and you know win eight games or something like that but i wouldn't be surprised to see them and maybe regress back to mean and be a six-win team based off of their secondary last year having to, to ratify that losing um you know offensive coordinator bringing in a lot of new pieces and kind of molding it all together you know for this upcoming year even though kj jefferson is you know a great talent yeah i'm much the same i like kj jefferson a lot but i feel like the program as a whole has backslid a little bit since that really good season a couple years ago hey Stu, can i jump in one one other sec related west thing yeah we haven't talked about him but hugh freeze goes back to the sec west you know, we we talked about obviously the top half of this. Um, what is realistic expectations? Peyton Thorne had his moment certainly at Michigan State. Now he's Freeze has been really good with quarterbacks. Um, what what do you think is realistic? I mean, we t- we've talked about other programs. I mean, are they at, somebody's got to lose? Are they the team? Is it just hey, get to a bowl game this year and that's progress? Or do you think they can win eight games? I think Hugh Freeze is a really good coach. I mean, I know there are other things not to like about Hugh Freeze, but I think he's a really good coach who beat Alabama two years in a row. I'm not all that. I mean, he's a lot of transfers. It's hard to get a full read on like their personality he's dealing with, but it would not surprise me at all if he comes in and Auburn's much better, you know, now maybe it's one win improvement or something like that. But if you tell me Hugh Freeze comes in and lights the place up, absolutely within the realm of possibility just because of the respect I have for him in particular as an offensive coach. Do you want to weigh in, Kenny? It's on me. Uh, yeah. Um, I feel the same way about Hugh Freeze. Pers- I think 
I would call seven wins progress. I think if you look at their last three years, even in our hearts, and they've been in kind of like in that five, six win range, I think defensively being um, in a bowl game, seven wins would be considered progress. For Hugh Freeze, I feel like he's already made a ton of progress within the program, just what he's done on the recruiting trail. Now, obviously, that has to stick into December, and he's had to put a product on the field that recruits can be excited about. But I think that he's already kind of laid the groundwork for a successful first year just based off of the talent that he's going to be bringing in in this upcoming class and perceivably the next few classes. But under, you know, with Peyton Thorne at quarter, he is known for kind of, you know, having these really exciting offenses and knowing what he's doing with the quarterback position. So I wouldn't be surprised if Auburn was a, a sneaky good team and I could see them, you know, in that type range. All right, King, we'll get you out on this. As you said at the beginning, you're the new kid on the block here. Uh, you came in to start covering Alabama for us. You had previously covered Iowa. And so two-part question. To what's the biggest difference in, in being on the Alabama beat versus the Iowa beat? And then just give us a quick prediction. Does Brian Ferentz score more than 25 points per game? Yeah. Um, differences, the first one would probably be the access Iowa has like really, really good player access availability wise. You know, we usually get five to seven players several times over the summer and, um, you know, assistant coaches and those things, which is obviously different than, uh, than Bama. As far as everything else, does Brian Ferentz score 25 points per game? I think he does. Honestly, I think I like Iowa's team. Team. Maybe it's recency bias from being up here and having covered the team, but I like the addition to Kay McNamara. Um, they probably to a bad offense under Adam skill players. Um, I think Luke Lachey is a really good time. Him and Eric Arnold are going to make a strong deal. I think defense going to remain at that you know somewhat elite level. So I was my pick to win the the Big Ten West, and I do think that you know they're going to reach that twenty five point threshold. I could see Iowa, it's like you know, like a nine and three type team, maybe a ten and two team if they have a really good year. But I'm high on the Hawkeyes. So that means he'll be back the next year, right? Yeah, with a I raise, think I think, think with a raise or a bonus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's creeping up into that million dollar coordinator territory. Um, guys, if you want the best Alabama coverage out there, you need to follow Kenny. His handle on Twitter is at skinnykenny underscore. Um, and obviously read all his great work on The Athletic. Kenny, thanks for coming on. Let's open the mailbag. As always, you can send your questions to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. To start off, Bruce, we got two questions about the same team, and it's almost like two completely different viewpoints of that team. And I wanted to bring it up because it it's Wisconsin, and I have had my own like back and forth internal debate about how they'll do this year. So we start with Chris in Seattle, who I'm going to assume is a Wisconsin fan. Love the podcast. My question this year is, can Wisconsin be this year's TCU? It seems on paper, everything is falling in place for them to make a run at the CFP. Schedule is more than favorable. With the toughest games, Ohio State and Iowa coming to Madison. Ohio State will be breaking in a new QB. And if they can get by Illinois and a season-ending revenge-fueled trip to Minnesota, Whoa, I didn't see this coming. It's not completely out of the question that this team could be 12-0 and heading into the Big Ten Championship. What do you think? Opposite viewpoint, Tom McHale in Council Bluffs, Iowa, who I'm going to assume is a Nebraska fan. When Nebraska went away from their bread-and-butter option, smash-mouth type of football in 2004, their first season in Bill Callahan's West Coast offense was a train wreck. Barry Alvarez modeled Wisconsin's offense from his time in Nebraska, 
and this has been their approach ever since, why isn't the move from an offensive style so ingrained in the culture to the air raid by Luke Fickle being met with more skepticism? That is a good point. So you know what's going to be wild here? Like there's a scheduling quirk that I don't don't know how many people have kind of picked up on that involves Wisconsin. So they play Buffalo in the opener. And then they play at Washington State. By the way, Washington State beat them last year, obviously, up there in, in Madison. Then they play Georgia Southern. And then they play at Purdue. So that three-game stretch is really going to be interesting, and here's why. So week two at Wazoo, they play. The offensive coordinator is Ben Arbuckle, and he put up a ton of yards at his previous stop. He is a Zach Hitley air raid disciple. The next week, they play Georgia Southern. Brian Ellis, the OC, is also exactly very similar to that offense. And then week three, the, the third week of that stretch, they go to Purdue. They're going to play Hudson Card. And they're going to play Graham Harrell's air raid. And so you have Phil Longo, who never coached with Mike Leach, but definitely learned under him and is an air raid guy, bringing it to Wisconsin. And you're going to have three weeks in a row where they are going to face a legit, like, you know, a very high, high powered, different version of the air raid. And so I think Badger fans' heads are going to be spinning with what they're going to see over this stretch, especially you know, three weeks in a row, you could see some, some legit big 12 looking football from the, you know, mid 2010s. Georgia Southern, by the way, an example of a program that went from option football for a long time to the wide open passing game. If you remember one at Nebraska last year, Uh, I went back and forth on this myself because I do think this is, you know, understandably. So there's a lot of excitement about Luke Fickle coming to Wisconsin He's bringing in, he's making this change to a more exciting offensive system. And they've got players like Braylon Allen. So it's easy to get caught up in that and be like, he's going to, you know, turn them around right away. But it is a huge, huge change to go from 30 years of the Barry Alvarez model of offense to this. And so at the end of the day, I could see it going either way. I don't, even in my best case scenario, I wouldn't say them going 12 and 0, uh, but 10 and 2, maybe even 11 and 1, that could happen. You know what could also happen? 5 and 7, if it just turns out to be a really uh, too, too tough a transition to pull off in one year. Not that it couldn't work there long term, but, you know, it's kind of like, uh, I mean, the recent comparison I would use actually was Brent Venables at Oklahoma last year. Uh, obviously, everybody felt really burned by Lincoln Riley, and they had kind of hyped this up to be like Brent Venables is going to be even better than Lincoln Riley. It imploded, and I Brent thought a lot Venables of that is a, is a first-time head coach. Yeah, I thought a lot of that was just going from a coach in Lincoln Riley who was all about offense to a coach in Brent Venables who was all about defense, and that takes more than one year to make that kind of transformation. But at the end of the day, when I looked, when I did my standings, I still ended up with Wisconsin winning the West just because. I really only see two teams that could win the West, them or Iowa. So you had them as 10 and 2, Stu? I had them as 9 and 3 because I have them losing that game in Pullman. Um, okay. Uh, like, yeah, I think they're probably a 10 and 2 team. They do have, like, I don't, you know, one of the one of the um, emailers pointed out about the Ohio State game. I don't love when they get Ohio State. The fact that probably the three most physical teams on their schedule are all in a row. Iowa at Illinois, and then they have a really talented Ohio State team. Like Iowa and Illinois is not going to be a fun one to punch. Like Illinois is really physical. Iowa's always physical. 
And then you're going to have a speed team that also can be physical in Ohio State. Like, I don't think that's a great, you know, trifecta for them. But I think they can win. I think they can go 10 and 2. I mean, I really think this offense is going to be dangerous because they have, when he was in North Carolina, they ran the ball really well. As you said, you know, Braylon Allen is a sledgehammer who's in the best shape of his life. They have good receivers. They have, you know, really good young tight end. I don't know if the defense is as talented as it, as it has been, um, but I still think, you know, they're going to be so much better on offense. So I don't, you know, if they were in the Big 12 and they didn't have to deal with, with Michigan, Ohio State, and Penn State on the other side, I'd be like, yeah, they could be, they could be a, you know, have a TCU kind of run or whatever. But I just don't think they're, I don't think they're coming, they're going to be able to beat the Big Ten East team coming out. But I'm, I'm a believer. Which has been I, the case ever since they went to these divisions. I mean, Wisconsin's reached a lot of Big Ten title games, but they, you know, they won them when it was the legends and leaders. But when they moved to this West East, correct me if I'm wrong, no team from the West has won the Big Ten championship game. It's been either Ohio State, Michigan State, or most recently Penn State won one, and most recently Michigan twice. Okay. Ian McFarlane, La Cañada, California, Stu and Bruce, Shalom, and welcome to another season. But with the new season beginning, let's talk about something deeply off the field. And this was big news this week in your town, Bruce. Washington's search for an athletic director with the delightful Jen Cohen moving here to L.A. to take the USC job, which was the first time in as long as I can remember that USC made a home run hire, in my opinion, as AD. I'm sure you agree. I absolutely agree. So I'm not going to say I put much thought into who the next Washington AD is going to be, but but Ian brings up a pretty interesting name. Jeremiah Donati, the TCU AD, he's a Washington native, albeit Pullman of all places. He's a former agent, which will be invaluable in an NIL world. And he's had a phenomenal run of hires and success in the Power Five and already has a closet full of purple ties. How does UW look any further? He's basically saying, go ahead and don't even do a search. Hire Jeremiah Donati. I don't know if Jeremiah would leave TCU. He was he did a really good job in development for his mentor, Christel Conti. And then um, you know, they've they've done a lot to really upgrade everything about the program, the stadium and and I don't know. But I think you're overlooking one thing. As of two weeks ago, Washington is a big ten job now. No, I get it. If I you get get, it. you're gonna be in the Big Twelve or the Big Ten, most people and the way the landscape is evolving, are going to choose the Big Ten. But I don't know. I obviously don't know his personal situation. I mean, you could also be the best school in the in the conference, and who knows where, you know, is the, is the destination job to go, if you're him, do you leave? Is, is Washington that much of a better job than TCU? By the way, TCU probably can pay them, pay Jeremiah Donati more than Washington can. I suspect they probably would. So... Okay, so here's, I was planning to ask you this even before we got this question. You work with the guy, you're going to be in studio with him this weekend. Would Chris Peterson consider being an athletic director at Washington? I doubt it um, because that's a headache job with a lot of stuff involved. And I, my hunch, and I'm, I don't want to speak for him on this, but I know he finds it very rewarding right now. 
to be as involved as he is with coaches um, as a resource. I don't want to say as a mentor necessarily, but as a resource because he's able to share his perspective. If if he jumps in as an AD, especially at that level, I just think he knows that's a lot of headaches, and I don't know how fulfilling that'll ultimately be for him. Um, I'd be surprised if he would do that. I just don't think that's something that because I think he knows enough about the job. Like when you know, it's interesting when he was at Washington, um, Scott Wilbur's first as AD, and then Jen Cohen, who really was was the person in the athletic department designated for working on football. So I think he has the perspective of knowing how valuable she was as the liaison, but then knowing all the other stuff that comes with being an AD, it just would surprise me. Somebody else had asked me that. Like I, I did Rick Neuheisel's radio show the other day, and he brought that up, and I just wouldn't expect it. So, by the way, no Chris Peterson for me this week. He is he is not in studio with me. It is it is uh, your old friend Mike Hill and I are. Or, uh, two of us. So, do you have any other? Um, I, I don't have an obvious name um, for this Washington AD job, unless there's somebody internally that they might want to promote. I don't either. Um, you John know, John Wilner suggested JD Wicker at San Diego John State. Also suggested Terry Toomey, who's who had, was the one who initially hired Kalen DeBoer at Fresno State. He was a terrific football player in his own right back at UCLA. Um, and, and maybe that's, you know, I would think that's certainly a big step up job. As you mentioned, it's Washington is going to be a big 10 school. So I could see that. Um, I don't know. I haven't honestly asked enough people or talked to people within the business about who would make a lot of sense there. This would be an interesting wrinkle that John Wilner suggests Pat Chun. If Washington can join the Big Ten and Washington's athletic director can jump to USC, why can't the Huskies hire a Cougar? I would think given Washington State's predicament right now, Pat Chun would be looking to get out. But I also think Pat Chun could be a candidate to replace Gene Smith at Ohio State. I certainly think he could. Yeah, I would agree with that. So, all right, let's do this question from Rob in Atlanta. Guys, can you imagine a world where the Saudi PIF buys and funds a college football league? Given the funds they have spent on transfer fields, fees and salaries from the pr- Saudi Premier League and the amounts they paid out on the Live Golf Tour, forming a college football league would be a fraction of the price. David Oven wrote an interesting column about that a few weeks ago, that possibility. And that was even before we found out that Florida State is in fact looking to sell an equity stake in their athletic department <clears throat> or what would be like a n- new version of their athletic department to a private equity fund here in the States. I don't pretend to know. I don't, I'm not a golf guy, so I haven't followed the live golf thing that closely, but my question would be, you know, the, the sports that we've seen the Saudi fund invest in are international sports. You know, golf plays tournaments all over the globe. Um, Premier league is obviously international sport. Aren't they involved what would with be, as well? Yeah. If one, what would be the, what, what, how would it further their cause to get into a sport that is solely in America? I don't, I don't know if it's just from an optic standpoint of, I, I, I don't know. I don't have a great answer for that on a, other than like, I get it where you're saying like, what really is in it for them in terms of compared to some of these other things that probably resonate on a lot more because it's you know 
it's almost like when when whenever you meet somebody who grew up in Canada, one of the things of sports wise they're most baffled by is college football. <laughs> it just I can imagine. You know, so I think this would be at times, you know, it's a sport that a lot of people, you know, outside of North America really don't have much comprehension for, or, you know, and so I think that's a, I think that's a good point you're making. I'm sure some people will write in of why you're an idiot, but. Well, um, I think what we should have done is in hindsight, if we really wanted to tackle this, con- this topic, we would need to get somebody who's covered the live golf thing very closely. Because they they they've dug in way more on what's going on with with Saudi Arabia and sports. Maybe I've only get, kind of uh, followed it from get, afar. Maybe we get Brendan Quinn on here. Brendan or, Quinn, or, Brody Miller, you know some of our our golf people. Uh, I want to end real quick with uh, this one I got a few days ago from Nick Conley. Hello, Stu and Bruce. Hope you guys are doing well. I just want to check in and see how excited Stu is for a brand new season of Fansville Dr Pepper commercials this year. So I have definitely mocked those commercials in the past, but I got to tell you, Bruce, I, I am now a fan. I thought it was a, I I didn't understand why, and and granted in college football, you see these commercials, they just pound them into your head throughout the season. So if you don't like them, you're in for a long year. And I thought the first couple seasons of that were stupid where they won me over was how they're now incorporating the, like the, the one that won me over was the transfer portal ad. Like, they're they're fully acknowledging actual specific things going on in college football. Last year, there was the uh, how many NIL deals does Bryce Young have? So I, I'm looking forward to it mostly because I want to see what maybe it'll be realignment or something. Uh, what college football current contemporary storyline are they going to incorporate into those ads? Okay. All right. As always, as always, you have no thoughts on something if <laughs> something lighthearted like that. No, I could care less at this point. We have games this weekend. I don't care about fans. All right. Sorry. As always, you can send your questions to the audiblepod at gmail.com. You're right. We have games this weekend. We'll talk about them on Monday and we will hit the one power conference we haven't previewed yet, the Big 12. We'll see and you next time. You see, and if you see Stu at the bar this weekend trying to find Pac 12 Network, buy him a drink. Buy him a Coke. All right, we'll see you next time. We get away with the things we use.